Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Now, what you're about to listen to is a teaching lesson from our Wednesday night study series entitled, What is God Like? A Study of the Attributes of the Almighty. Well, good evening, New Life Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in to the Wednesday night live stream as we are continuing our study of the attributes of God. We've entitled this series, What is God Like? Um, A Study of the Attributes of the Almighty. As Brandon said at the beginning, we um, have been talking about the sovereignty of God uh, for the past two Sundays, or I'm sorry, Wednesdays, and tonight we're going to finish up the study of the sovereignty of God. Uh, Before we do that, I'd like us to read a a passage from Romans chapter 11. Uh, It's going to be Romans 11, verses 33 through 35. So if you would, grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 33, 34, and 35. This is the word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Let's read that last verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign God. We come before you this evening, Lord, needing your Holy Spirit, God, to open up our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. Lord, I have no power of my own to express your sovereignty, God. I am a a small, puny mind, and you are just so unfathomable and so far beyond all that we are, God. So I ask, Lord, that you empower me this hour to express clearly and effectively and powerfully uh, what it is that you want your people to know. God, and I pray that you will open up the ears of those who are, who are ordained to receive this word, Lord, that they would receive it and that it would bear much fruit in their lives, God. May you be glorified this evening. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So let us begin tonight by refreshing our memories regarding the definition that we've been working with for the sovereignty of God. What we've been saying is that in the sovereignty of God, what we're saying with that is that he has the right and the ability to do all that he pleases whenever he pleases and however he pleases. That he has supreme authority over the entirety of his creation. We covered in the first section at length why he has that right and how he uses that ability. 
And in session two last week, we looked at his sovereignty, how he exercises his sovereignty in the affairs of the world and in your personal life. Now in session three, we're going to be looking at the most controversial aspect of God's sovereignty of all, his sovereignty in salvation. Church, I will readily admit here at the beginning that this is not easy. I will readily admit that this is going to be difficult to grasp, and in fact, as John MacArthur famously said, and brilliantly said, you can't understand this. Neither can I. So our goal tonight, believe it or not, is not to necessarily walk away with a full understanding of, of God's sovereign election and God's sovereignty and salvation, but rather to see it in Scripture that it is a truth and to walk away believing that it's true. And as the passage said in Romans that we read, that we will walk away glorifying God and glorifying him because we can't understand it fully. So what's the goal tonight? It is to show that the Lord sovereignly elects those who will be saved. He keeps those who he saves. And that... I'm sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Our goal tonight is to show that the Lord sovereignly elects those who will be saved. He keeps those he saves, and that without him doing so, we are all destined to eternal judgment. So let's begin with man and man's moral inability to come to God. So man's moral inability to come to God, what does that mean? It means that we cannot come to God on our own. Let's look at Scripture and see what the word, the word has to say. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind this passage shows us that as it says in romans that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to god now in ephesians it shows us that that is the mindset that we have naturally in our natural unconverted unregenerate state we naturally have a mindset that is hostile towards god 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
How can a man dead in his sins discern something that is spiritual? The answer is he cannot. Most of us grew up hearing about choices. You have to make a choice. Everything in your life is based on a choice. You have to choose to believe. You have to choose to do this. You have to choose to avoid going to hell. And you have to choose to go to heaven. But I, that raises a question. If, if hell is so awful and heaven is so fantastic, why do so few people choose heaven? We'll ask that again. If hell is so awful and heaven is so wonderful, then why do so few people choose heaven? Well, we could sit around and we could theorize and we could hypothesize all of the reasons why, and we could even turn heaven into a metaphor for some form of spiritual enlightenment. But the reality is that we do not choose heaven for one fundamental reason that we all have in common. We will not choose heaven because we cannot choose heaven. This is a statement supported by the three verses that we read just a bit ago. We cannot choose the things of God because we are dead in our sins. We cannot do it. We will not do it. In case this is difficult for you to swallow, which it probably is, and I totally understand, allow me to use myself as an example. Let me use myself as an illustration. Many of you don't know. Some of you do. Some of you don't. But I used to be an alcoholic. I squandered about 12 years of my life to alcohol. I just wasted so much time, so much money, hurt a lot of people. Trust me when I tell you that there were plenty of loved ones and plenty of role models in my life telling me that I needed to change, telling me that I needed to start living right, telling me that I had a problem and, and you need to change and, and why don't you get it? Why don't you get your act together? Why don't you start praying? Why don't you start going to church? So much so that even the legal system stepped in and said, yes, son, you have a problem. You need to change. But what was the problem? Why didn't I just wise up after the first DWI? Why didn't I just wise up after I started to see how much I was wasting? Why didn't I just come to my senses when my mother would call me crying, begging for me to change? Why not after the second DWI? Why not after the third DWI? Why not after seeing all of the carnage my life was creating in other people's life, why didn't I just turn around? The reason why is because I couldn't listen. I wouldn't listen because I couldn't listen. I was dead in my trespasses and my sins. 
in which I once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, as it says in Ephesians 2 that we read a bit ago. And I'll tell you, there were even times that I wanted to stop. There were even times where, where I, I, I looked around and I saw the, the mess that I was making. And it was a, a brief moment of, of the Lord allowing me to see this. And then I would harden my heart and continue on in my sin. There were times where I wanted to be free. But I had no power to free myself. I was Lazarus laying in the tomb of my own depravity. And no matter how many people stood outside of that tomb, screaming and begging for me to come out, I would not come out because I could not come out. You see, I am an object lesson. The old me is someone who was an obvious sinner. No one would question that. If you knew me back then, you would not question whether or not I was a sinner. It was clear by the lifestyle that I was living. But I believe strongly that my past, my former addiction, now serves as an object lesson to the world of what it means to be dead in your sin. Your sinfulness might not be as obvious as mine was. But in the eyes of God, you are all just as guilty as I ever was. Let that sink in. In the same way that I would not stop drinking because I could not stop, you will not stop sinning because you cannot stop sinning. You are dead in your trespasses and sins apart from the saving hand of God. Now surely you have a story similar to this. Mine might be more extreme. But surely you have a time in your life when the gospel, you were deaf to the gospel and you were blind to the majesty of who Christ is People would tell you the gospel. People would tell you to read your Bible. People would tell you to pray. Or maybe you would even open the Bible and it was just words on the page. It didn't make any sense to you. In which case, you can relate. Because now you stand on the other side of that and you look back and say, Yeah, I can see I was dead in my sins, but now, thanks be to God, I live You'll remember Romans 8, 7 that says, For the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. It will not submit to the law of God because it cannot submit to the law of God. This is how we all stand before the Lord God Almighty, all of us are born this way, whether you were born in church, you were born on the mission field, or if you were born in an alley somewhere, all of us were born this way. So you see, a person who is dead in sin will not choose God because they cannot choose God. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, 
No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. How many people can come to Jesus apart from the drawing of the Father? No one can come to me. No one, nobody. That's not a trick sentence. It says what it says. No one can come unless the Father draws him. The real difficulty, if you're listening to this right now and you're squirming in your seat and it's not settling well with you, hear this. The real difficulty that any among us has in accepting that God is the one that has to choose to save is that we do believe somewhere in our minds that surely, 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 I'm not that bad. Surely, my sin is not that extreme. Surely, I am the exception to the rule. But what do the scriptures say? Let's ask a series of questions, and let's answer it by the scriptures alone. Question one, is man inherently good? Answer, Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. Question two, can man understand the gospel in such a way that they then begin to seek after the God of that gospel? Answer, Romans 3.11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Question three, does man have any intrinsic worth that would entice God to save him, or can man earn God's good grace by good deeds? Answer, Romans 3, 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures do not blush in painting a bleak picture of mankind. We are all prisoners in the cages of our own sinfulness. And unless the one who holds the key to death in the grave comes and lets us out, there will we remain. We are all in the morgue of our own depravity. And unless he who is the resurrection and the life comes to resurrect us to newness of life, there will we remain. I ask you, what can a dead man do? So the question becomes, who then can be saved? And how can we be saved? I'm glad that you asked. You ask great questions, I tell you. I, I'll never tire of telling you that. The answer is sovereign election. That God sovereignly elects those who he saves. Let's define this in a manner consistent with our definition for sovereignty. Sovereign election means that God has the right and the ability 
to choose to save whoever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and however he pleases. Now, before you get mad at me thinking that this is something that I invented, or before you start saying to yourself, well, I just don't believe that, let's ask again, what do the scriptures say? Deuteronomy 14.2 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do you see the nature of God in choosing some for his possession out of everyone? Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see that? It, does not, it says it does not depend on human will. What is that saying? It does not be, depend on human choice. It's God's choosing to be compassionate, to be merciful. 2 Timothy 1.9 Speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See clearly the scriptures painting a portrait of a God who sovereignly elects, a God who has the right and the ability to choose to save who he will, when he will, and however he pleases. We all love to hear of God's grace, and indeed we should, because we need it desperately. But what is grace? What makes grace, grace? Grace is often defined as the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unearned favor of God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Let me say that again. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And mercy is get not getting what we do deserve. Do you see? We see both of these to be true in the Lord's Sovereign election of his bride, of redeemed sinners. He chooses the sinners he will redeem. He pays the debts of the sinners he redeems, of he, that he chooses. The sinner then does not get what he deserves, namely judgment and wrath. That's mercy. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus stood in our place taking our wrath. 
that we would not have to suffer that punishment. And because he has been redeemed, this happens, and that is mercy. And that redeemed sinner is added to the body of Christ and granted an eternal inheritance with all of the saints where he will live with the Lord in paradise forever and ever. This is grace because the sinner gets what he does not deserve. The sinner does not deserve heaven. The sinner does not deserve an eternal inheritance in heaven. The sinner does not deserve right standing before God. Yet God bestows it on whom he will, and that is grace. God does not owe anyone mercy or grace. To owe mercy and grace to have to be merciful and gracious is to go against the very nature of what mercy and grace are. Remember, these are things, grace is something, you getting something that you don't deserve. So for God to owe you grace or me grace, that is no longer grace. That's just God repaying you a debt. Or for God to owe you mercy is to go against what mercy is. You see, God is just. He must punish sin. Therefore, all of us who have sinned, which is all of us, owe God this death. And for us to get around having to pay that, God has to be merciful and not give us what we deserve. As we read in Romans 9, he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have mercy and compassion. It is entirely up to him. He has the right and the ability to make that call and he exercises that right and uses that ability. Thus, what God has seen fit to do is to elect some to be saved before the foundation of the world. It's what we learned in 2 Timothy 1.9, that he chose us before the ages began. Imagine this. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you chose. God chose you. If you are in Christ today, it is because God chose you before the foundations of the world. Grace and mercy on full display. He chose you despite you. Despite any good or bad that you would ever do before you ever even had a chance to sin, the Father already had designs to save you. How wonderful this is. For some of us, he allowed us to run in our sinfulness and depravity for a time. And for others, you got saved very early on in your life. For some, it was an incredibly miraculous moment when God saved you. And for others, it was more gentle and quiet. Either way, it is God who chose you. It is God who saved you. 
In Ephesians 1.5, it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, and in love, he predestined us for adoption, to be his children. Is this not the most incredible display of love that you can fathom to be chosen regardless of what you will ever do? This is incredible love. What an incredible comfort it is to know that your entire life has existed within the boundary lines that God has drawn before the foundations of the world for his plan for your life. And though you tried, you thought you were running, you were never outside of his eyesight. You were never outside of saving length. You were always within the boundary line of his wonderful plan to save you. What a wonderful God we serve. Before Genesis 1-1 happened, think about this. Before Genesis 1-1 that says, In the beginning, God created. Before that happened, God knew you. God chose you. And God saved you. It is my personal conviction that God then allows you to go through your sinfulness so that when he saves you, you now understand grace and mercy and love. You appreciate and understand his, his mercy in forgiving you, his grace in saving you, and his love toward you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen God. And the same thing goes for you. If God doesn't do it this way, we will never choose God. No, instead, love chooses you, mercy forgives you, and grace saves you. This all happens so that God will be glorified in and among us. Let us understand that without God choosing to save at least some, none would be saved. If it were entirely up to our decision-making ability, we'd never, ever, ever, ever choose God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, 
I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. You see, this, this teaching of election, some think that it causes pride in people, but in reality it humbles you to the fullest extent because we look at who we are and what we have done and the incredible debt that we owe to God and we see that despite us, it has nothing to do with us, that God chose us in love because of his incredible love for you. Don't you know that you will sooner drown in the ocean of God's love before you ever comprehend his love for you? It's so unfathomable and we don't deserve it. But that's what this is all about. It's God's incredible love for his elect and his unstoppable power in saving them to the glory of his name. There is so much more to say about this. This is a beautiful doctrine. But let's cover one final aspect of God's sovereign election. That is, that since God chose you, it will be God who keeps you. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice, it is God who chose you, and it is God who keeps you. This is why Paul can say to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why Peter says in his first letter that we are being guarded by God's power for a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. And it's why Jude can write at the end of his short letter that God can keep us from stumbling and present us holy and blameless before himself in the last day. Why? Because those whom God has chosen to be saved will be saved. Imagine how finicky our decision-making process is. I mean, those of you who are married... How long does it take to make a decision of where to eat? It takes a long time. And if you're anything like Gabby and I, we, we choose a place, and then we choose a different place, and then a different place, and then a different place, and then a different place. Because we are finicky. We change our minds. So imagine if, if all that kept you tied to God was your choosing of Him. That's not confidence. That is not grounds for you to be confident in God keeping you, in you really genuinely being saved. However, 
Because God is immutable and He does not change ever. When He chooses to save, it is permanent. Notice all three of these scriptures said that you will be kept until the last day, until the day of Jesus Christ, until the last time. That is because those who have been put in the palm of Jesus Christ, those who he chose to put in his hand, no one will take him out of his hand because he chose to put them there. Not even you. You couldn't jump out of his hand if you tried. Now this does not by any means absolve us from our own personal responsibility to be seeking after the Lord, or our own personal responsibility to live a life of holiness. We cannot adopt the uh, attitude and mindset that, well, since I'm chosen, I don't have to do anything because God will work it out for me. Don't ever say that. That is a heart of arrogance and pride. And in fact, that would be evidence that you have not been chosen but instead, what this ought to develop in you is a, an attitude of such gratitude that you would say that if God's grace and love be this magnificent, He can have it all. He can have my time. He can have my money. He can have my hobbies. He can have my family, my friends. He can have everything because He is worthy. Philippians 2.13 says that God is working in us to give us the strength and the desire to do what pleases Him. And it is that work in us that will be accomplished. It will happen. If you are in the palm of the Almighty, no one can take you out of His grasp. Not even you. Because He chose to put you there. When He caused you to be born again, he, you were born again to a life that is everlasting, a life that is imperishable, a life that is eternal, not just for five days of your life, not just during summer camp, not just at, at the altar on Sunday morning when the music is low, it is soft and the lights are low, not just when you're stirred with emotion, but if God has chosen to save you, you are saved entirely and completely. The scriptures often speak of, of us being saved and being saved. That means it's not just something that happened one time. It is continuing to happen in our lives. And it will continue to happen in our lives until the last day. In other words, God's work will be completed. His word will not return to him void this is why we can rest in the sovereignty of God. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head, giving him perfect peace. When we grasp that 
even grasping that God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign hand is so far beyond what we could ever understand, though we might not be able to communicate how sovereign he is and in in what ways he is sovereign, we can at least know that he is sovereign and that if we are his children, he will work out everything in our lives for his good for your good, rather, and for his glory. This is a guarantee. This is a promise for the child of God because it is God who makes the promise. It is God who chooses, and it is God who will accomplish it all. Glory to God for this. Glory to God that he chooses us despite us. God will not lose his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He will not fail. God's sovereign election means that God has the right and the ability to choose to save whoever he pleases, however he pleases, and whenever he pleases. He possesses and exercises supreme authority over salvation. We thank God that this is true because without him deciding to save some, none would be saved. Yet all of those who he does predestine to salvation, he will keep until the very end. He will cause us to endure all things, all trials, all tribulations, all sufferings, as he works them out for our good and for his glory. And he will present us unto himself blameless in the last day. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign God. Lord, I just pray, Father, that right now, as as people might be wrestling with with the reality of seeing your sovereign plan in Scripture, Lord, and seeing it in black and white. And we might be wrestling with with the implications of how sovereign you really are. Lord, I ask that you bring peace in all of our hearts, that we may rest in your sovereign, saving hand, and that we may just trust you, that you know best, You know better than we do. You're more loving than we could ever be. You're more wise than we could possibly imagine. You're more gracious than we've ever dreamt. Lord, and help us to just live in a way that we are displaying our gratitude towards you. And let this be motivation to push us to evangelize and to spread the gospel to the world around us that some might be saved. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
grace, peace, and mercy to you all.